I'm Jorge Salazar with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Imagine a new kind of computer that could quickly solve problems that would stump even the world's most powerful supercomputers. Quantum computers are fundamentally different. They can store information as not only just ones and zeros, but in all the shades of gray in between. Several companies and government agencies are investing billions of dollars in the field of quantum information. But what will quantum computers be used for? South by Southwest 2018 hosts a panel called Quantum Computing, Science Fiction to Science Fact. It's on March 10th from 11 a.m. to noon at the Fairmount Manchester EFG in Austin, Texas. Experts on quantum computing make up the panel, including Jerry Chow of IBM, Bo Ewald of D-Wave Systems, Andrew Fersman of OneCubit, and Antia Lamas-Linares of the Texas Advanced Computing Center at UT Austin. Dr. Lamas Linares is a research associate in the High Performance Computing Group at TAC. Her background is as an experimentalist with quantum computing systems, including work done with them at the Center for Quantum Technologies in Singapore. She joins us on the podcast to talk about her South by Southwest panel and about some of her latest research on quantum information. Dr. Lamas Linares, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So tell us about your panel at South by Southwest 2018. It's called Quantum Computing, Science Fiction to Science Fact. What is quantum computing and what are some of its misconceptions? Quantum computing is a part of a broader field that has been developed maybe in the last 30 years, probably. Sometimes it's also called the second quantum revolution. The ideas are that everybody knows that quantum mechanics has a lot of weird features, things that people don't understand that are very counterintuitive. And for most of the 20th century, those things were seen as annoyances or things to explain or philosophically discuss and struggle around. And in the early 80s, probably, and mostly in the 90s, people started thinking about these weird features as resources, as things we can actually harness and use to do things we cannot do with classical resources. And these are things like superposition, entanglement, inherent randomness of quantum mechanics. So these are the core elements. And people realize they could use this for computing, for cryptography, and also for precision measurements. And those combinations of things we call quantum information or quantum technologies. Quantum computing fits. It's one of the parts of quantum technologies. And it really got started in the early 80s when Feynman, in discussing how we simulate quantum systems, things like quantum chemistry, you know, properties of materials. When you go down to the single atom levels and you try to explain the properties that those materials have, and you try to do simulations with computers, you run into trouble because it turns out it's very inefficient to simulate these things. And Feynman realized that part of the reason that it was so inefficient was that the computers are classical, but the systems are quantum. So he speculated that we really need a computer that is inherently quantum. And that was sort of the foundational realization of the field. Uh, later, that got developed and more specific algorithms came about that really launched our interest. Yeah, to make that distinction, I guess, um, between like digital computers, ones and zeros, quantum computers, not ones and zeros. Yeah, so that comes to one of the main things in quantum mechanics, which is the property of superposition. So in classical computing or in classical physics, everything is in a particular state. So if you have a bit, it's either a zero or a one, but it's not going to be in an intermediate position. That's why they're digital. In quantum mechanics, 
you can have superpositions. So you can have half of zero and half of one. And it doesn't mean we don't know this state. It really means that object that we call it a quantum bit or qubit is in, in a superposition. And that allows you to do things that you cannot do classically. So you can, sometimes people talk about the inherent parallelism of quantum computers. And the idea there is that if you have one qubit that is in a superposition of zero and one, in some sense you can do a computation at the same time on the zero value and on the one value. Now for one qubit that doesn't make much of a difference, but once you have n qubits, a lot of qubits, the space that you're addressing computationally grows exponentially. That is one aspect of the parallelism of quantum computers. Now I want to be very clear, and that's one of the misconceptions that you were talking about, is that that doesn't mean that every problem can exploit this parallelism. It's a very limited and very special set of problems where that inherent parallelism can be exploited in a productive way. And we still don't know, we know a few examples of problems that are very well suited for that kind of thing, but it's exploding field. We don't know what problems are well addressed like that. We need a lot more people working on this to really explore that. Yeah, you were talking about these problems. You mentioned the quantum chemistry problems. What kind of problems are scientists hopeful that quantum computers can tackle that today's computers can't? So quantum chemistry, as I said before, that was sort of an initial driver of the idea of quantum computation. Now, just to give you an idea, quantum chemistry, if you take a big computing center like TAC that has users from all sorts of science disciplines and whatnot, maybe about 30% of the cycles of the computers are taken up by what can broadly be defined as quantum chemistry problems. Now, it turns out that quantum chemistry problems are some of those problems that we think can be well tackled by quantum computers. Now, of course, it's not every quantum chemistry problem. It's a limited set. But if indeed we have a relatively small quantum computer that can address significant problems in quantum chemistry, that will already make a huge impact in the use of large computational resources. So that's one thing that is for a place like TAC, that's already very exciting. For other people, it might be, well, you know, that's interesting, but it's, it's a little bit removed from everyday life. Another set of problems that we know are a big target for quantum computers are security problems. So problems in encoding information and decoding information. So we know that several of the public key protocols that are out there, such as RSA, are based in our inability to factor large numbers. So classical computers can factor numbers, we all know that, but they're inefficient at doing it. That means that as we increase the size of the number that we want to factor, the time it takes to factor that number grows in an unsustainable way. It just grows too fast. We know there exists an algorithm for quantum computers that doesn't have that property. It grows in a civilized way. So we know that if we get a quantum computer of a reasonable size, we will be able to break some uh, versions, very widely used versions of public key encryption. Of course, that's a huge worry. And certainly agencies like the NSA are, are very interested in that aspect. So there is that. There is the factoring problem. And then recently, quantum computing has sort of joined forces with problems in or researchers in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And it turns out, again, that 
quantum computers might be particularly good at some problems in machine learning, which is a huge area of expansion. So companies like Alibaba, for example, just made a huge investment, like several billion dollars, many billion dollars, in a research campus that is dedicated to quantum computing or quantum technologies and AI. So those two things they see as complementary to each other. Would you talk about some of your experiences setting up experiments with quantum computers? You're an experimentalist. You've had hands-on experiences with these quantum computers. What are quantum computers like? I can tell you a little bit about my background. So my background is as an experimentalist in this broader field that is called quantum information, quantum technologies. I mostly worked with photons. So mostly my work has been focused on making entanglement, making entangled states that are complex and have funny properties and measuring them. This is part of the technology that is used for quantum computation, but it's not directly what people use right now for building quantum computers. Now, it turns out that this field is fairly small, so we're all kind of, we use the same techniques and we're all together. So I've been working with some of the instruments that we use for measuring qubits, uh, low temperature qubits. So it turns out that right now, these proto-quantum computers, these tiny chips that people are making into little quantum computers, they only work at extremely low temperatures. And by extremely low, I mean just a few millikelvin above absolute zero. So for this, you need to use devices called dilution refrigerators. They look crazy. They look like something out of a steampunk movie. And they require a lot of know-how to operate. And so, so I've used these things, and I've worked in the same measuring properties of these devices. It's tricky. These devices essentially require a few... PhD level scientists just to just to you know make them feel good every morning and they're not production ready. What I mean by that is that quantum computing is still at the research stage. It's still at if you think of classical computers, it's still at the stage where maybe we were just we were figuring out the transistors but we didn't quite have integrated circuits and all the machinery, all the additional technology that we now associate with semiconductor manufacturing and so on. So we're at that early sort of heroic age where things are look like they're, they're held together with duct tape and chewing gum. <laughs> Actually, there was a, I just saw an article yesterday in a popular science website saying, you know, what is with quantum computing and dental floss? And it made me laugh because indeed, when you go to a low temperature lab like this, there's dental floss everywhere. And the reason is that people found out that it's a very flexible material. You can tie it in small knots, and it doesn't completely break down when you lower the temperature, and it doesn't outgas, which is a problem also when you lower the temperature. So, yeah, I remember, yeah, there's dental floss everywhere in the low-temperature labs. You talked about how quantum computers aren't production-ready. Um, TAC, the Texas Advanced Computing Center, that's our ballgame is production-ready, high-performance computing systems and the software and the expertise behind using all that. Could you tell us some, about some of the research that you've been doing at TAC on quantum computing or anything related to that? Yeah, sure. So as you said, TAC is, we are a production place, right? We provide services and cycles for scientists to do their research. So we need machines that are able to produce that. On the other hand, tech has always been very aware of emerging technologies. And actually, we host a whole bunch of different machines that have very leading technology in their fields. You know, we have a, a big data machine that has 
very special hardware. We have FPGA machines. We have several research machines hosted in our data centers, you know, which many people don't know about. People know about our flagship systems like Stampede 2 or Lone Star 5, but there's a lot more going on. And some of the things that are going on is that we really like to keep an eye on what's coming. So because of my background and I'm part of the high-performance computing group, I sort of fill that role for TAC. Now, what we're doing right now is mostly keeping an eye and making sure that we are in contact with all the main players, but also starting to think about how do we, once these machines are a little bit beyond what they're now, how are we going to judge their capabilities? So TAC has done a lot of internal research on benchmarking and predicting performance of future machines. That's every time we buy a new machine, we have to do this. And it turns out to be a fairly complicated problem. We have experts on this. When quantum hardware comes into play, it's going to be a whole different ball game, And it's going to be very complicated. Right now, also, there are very few bridges between the classical high-performance computing world and this emergent quantum computing world. Quantum computing researchers are physicists and computer scientists, but they are not immersed in this production sort of real-world problems or benchmarking, how benchmarking is done in a way that you can correlate it easily to what is done in classical benchmarking. So that is part of what we're doing. We're looking at how are we going to evaluate these systems? How do we benchmark? How do we make suits, combinations of problems that are fair to evaluate things. A lot of the benchmarking up to now has been done by players that have a stake in the game, meaning, you know, the, the companies that are making these chips evaluate them themselves. And although there's no reason to think that they're not being fair in their evaluation, you always want to have independent players. Tech is agnostic in terms of the technology. We just want to make decisions based on what is going to be best for our users. And in that sense, we can provide a different expertise and a different point of view. So that's a lot of what we're doing. I also, more practically, I work with colleagues here in at UT from the Advanced Research Laboratories, which is also here in Pickle. And they have a quantum information group, quantum computation group. And I've been working with James Troop on something called secure quantum clock synchronization. And that is one of these things, it's not quantum computation per se, but it's part of the broader field of quantum technologies. And the idea is that we came up with a way to do very accurate synchronization of remote clocks in a way that is non-spoofable. So just to give you a little bit of background of why we think this is important is that, so a lot of our technology, a lot of our infrastructure depends on accurate clocks. Navigation depends on accurate clocks. Synchronization of the electrical grid depends on accurate clocks. There are all sorts of things. Defense and civilian infrastructure. But we know that it's a very fragile infrastructure in the sense that it's not fragile in the fundamental sense. It's fragile in the sense that if you have a malicious adversary trying to mess it up, these systems were not conceived with a malicious adversary in mind. And one of those main systems is GPS. GPS, it turns out, is fairly easy to spoof, meaning that, you know, you're in a warship and somebody can make you think that you're in a different place than where you are. That's not good. Can crash you into a reef or something. So what we've been doing is essentially, one can think of it as a version of GPS or underlying clock synchronization that is very difficult or impossible, depending on your assumptions, for a malicious adversary to spoof. So 
that's sort of a again a different part of quantum technologies that is related but not exactly quantum computation. How are you taking advantage of quantum computing or quantum information to do that? So for explaining that a little bit, I have to tell you a little bit about the field of quantum cryptography. So the field of quantum cryptography is really interesting. It's much further developed than quantum computing it because it's the essentials are simpler in the sense that you don't need as many qubits, if you want, to have a useful system. So quantum cryptography, the way it works is when you have entanglement, so a pair of particles is produced and their properties are correlated. And they're correlated in a uniquely quantum way. So for example, if you create a pair of entangled photons, polarization entangled photons, if you measure their polarization, the polarization is always orthogonal. So if one is vertically polarized, the other one is horizontal. If one is minus 45, the other is plus 45. Now you might think, oh, these things are just randomly produced in different polarization states, and that can be explained classically. But you can show that there is no way that you can imagine a classical system that can create that type of correlations. And you can prove that. And it's actually a very simple mathematical theorem, and it has been proven experimentally. And if you take that one step further and say, okay, I have these funny correlations, can I use this to share a secret key or to generate a secret key for further encryption? It turns out that you can. And you can show that any attempt by an eavesdropper to measure these photons in transit or try to figure out what information you are they have within results in the legitimate parties, which we always call them Alice and Bob. So Alice and Bob share these entangled photons, and if an eavesdropper has done anything to them, they will be able to detect it. So if you use that entanglement property for sharing a clock signal and add some additional things into the mixture, you can also detect any attempt by an eavesdropper or a malicious party to interfere, to mess with that clock signal. And that gives you the security in secure quantum clock synchronization. Maybe we could just touch on some of the findings of this study that you've just uh, released in February of 2018 on quantum clock synchronization. Yeah, maybe you could touch on what, you know, the findings of your study and also maybe um, you know, what is a quantum clock? So clocks are interesting. So if any of you has ever seen explanations of relativity, you know, Einstein's ideas about special relativity, a lot of people have come across them in popular science and whatnot. And he liked to draw these little sketches with thought experiments. And half of them have clocks in them. So like, what is it about clocks? So a clock is just a device that ticks at some rate. You know, and that sounds extremely simplistic, but to some extent, that's that's it. We all have heard things like the twin paradox. And so time is a very subtle thing in physics. So people have been worried about clocks uh, for a long time, since the early 20th century. Now, already Einstein and Eddington and other sort of great figures of early 20th century wondered about how do we define things that are simultaneous? How do we know when things happened at the same time? And for that, well, you need clocks, right? You need somehow a clock is something that you look at it and it gives you a label, a timestamp. Now, if you have two remote clocks, they're not in the same spot. Well, how do you get them to show the same timestamp? Now, there's several problems there. The first one is that clocks don't tick at the same rate. 
And now we're so used to our cell phones that are always synchronizing with a cell phone tower. So we always know what time it is. But for those of us who remember clocks that did not have an external way of synchronizing, even your digital clock would, after a year or so, it would be a few minutes off or at least a few tens of seconds. And why is that? You know, why do clocks get out of sync? Well, in a simple digital clock, what you have is a little crystal that vibrates. And that gives you that rate. And okay, you have a rate. And it turns out that the rate at which a crystal vibrates only depends on its geometrical size. So how big it is and that, but also on the temperature. So if you have two different crystals, they will be at slightly different conditions and so on, they will start to drift. Now people put in the US, for example, there's a lot of effort into making, in the US, but also internationally, to make clocks that tick at a very stable rate. So for that, we use atomic clocks. Now, people don't know this, but pretty much every cell phone tower out there has an atomic clock in it, a rubidium clock. Every GPS satellite has a rubidium clock. Now, rubidium clocks are really good, but still, they will drift apart from each other because of environmental... So you can make better clocks, you know, and there are strontium clocks and aluminum clocks, and, and they get better and better and better. But still, they all take at slightly different rates. So your rates are different. So that's one problem. Another problem is the label, like what time is it? You need to somehow agree, where do you start time? And make sure that you can agree at what happens at 10 o'clock. You know, if you're both watching an eclipse, can I know at what time you're going to see the eclipse? So that is a, like yet another complication. For that, you need to exchange signals of some sort. But okay, if you exchange signals, well, you need to know how long the signal takes to get from one end to the other. Now, if it's light and vacuum, you know how fast that goes. But if it's not, then you're going to have to model how fast things go around and so on. With all this, what I want to say is that it's actually a pretty complicated and subtle problem. And now you add the complication of somebody messing up with your setup. So you have an eavesdropper that is, instead of you having a signal that you know how long it takes to propagate from one site to the other, well, you have an eavesdropper that introduces a delay in the path of that signal. So the question is, can you account for all that? Can you account for not knowing whether somebody is messing with your channel? And that's the work that we've been focusing on. And it's important work because people are worried about malicious parties uh, messing with the channels of GPS and so on. So people have identified that this is a problem. So there is a researcher here at UT, Todd Humphreys, whose research field is essentially showing that he can spoof GPS and coming up with ways of improving the resilience of GPS against spoofing attempts. What James Troop and I looked at is like, okay, can we use techniques from quantum cryptography and quantum information to make something that is inherently unspoofable? And that's what we did. So we came up with a theory here over the end of last summer, and then we wanted to do the experiment. Uh, so I contacted the research group I used to work with in Singapore, and they were, they're very interested in this subject. So uh, James and I went over there for a month and did some experiments, and we're having the first results now. They haven't been published, but that's the idea, and we're very excited about it. It's, we think it's very cool that you can harden something like clock synchronization in this way.
Yeah, so there's been a lot of interest lately in quantum computing by our organizations like Google getting into the game, South by Southwest putting on this panel. Why the sudden interest now? Why, is, why are things happening now um, in quantum computing? I think technologically we're getting to a very interesting point. Until now, it was pretty much a research subject. So this was done in physics labs and engineering labs all around the world. But since the last three to four years, really big players have come into the field. So there was an early player in quantum computing called D-Wave. And one of the founders of that company, uh, Bo Ewald, will be in the panel, actually. So D-Wave, about 10 years ago, started commercializing a quantum computer. Now, it was very early days. And at the beginning, they didn't release a lot of information about it. So people were very uncomfortable about what exactly this machine was doing and, and so on. But they've really uh, done a lot to push the field and early results, especially in benchmarking and looking at what these machines can do and what they can't do. So they were early players. They're still there. They've just got a, a huge investment of additional capital. But three or four years ago, other players started to get interested. Other, uh, I would say, commercial players. So Google essentially got a research group from UCSB, from UC Santa Barbara, and got them in-house to start like really developing quantum computing. IBM has had an interest, a research interest in quantum computing for a long time, but now they've really stepped up their efforts. Again, Jerry Chow is from IBM and he will be in the panel. And Intel as well has something there. Microsoft has a big investment. So, you know, all these, you're right, you know, what, what has prompted all these companies to sort of suddenly coalesce? And part of the reason is that we are reaching a very interesting point. It's sort of an inflection point in quantum computing. And that it has the a little bit unfortunate name of quantum supremacy. So the idea there is, at what point can we have a quantum computer that is sufficiently big that it can solve a problem that is not solvable with the largest supercomputers, classical supercomputers on Earth. So that is that inflection point is called quantum supremacy. It's when quantum sort of wins over the classical world. Now, I should clarify that the problem doesn't have to be useful. In fact, the candidate problems that we have now are not useful. They're just like toy problems, but they're really difficult for normal computers to deal with. And they can be solved with relatively small quantum hardware. And the size at which this inflection point is, is around 50 qubits. And several of these companies have announced like 49 qubit machines, right? So we're, we're almost there. So I think it, you can feel the excitement in the air, you know, sort of we're reaching that point where a quantum machine will be able to do a computation that is essentially just not possible to do with a classical computer. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we're production ready for real world problems, but it definitely shows that we've reached that point where we have these machines that are more powerful than the best we can do, you know, machines that cost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So there is something there. And I think that's essentially why that spike of interest. Also, there is a spike from government agencies, I should say, not so much in the U.S., although there is activity in the U.S. as well. But the European Union announced about a year and a half ago, there was a flagship program in quantum technologies that's a billion euros for research. China has a huge program. And Alibaba, as I said, has 
I think it's $17 billion for a campus on quantum technologies and AI. There is a lot of interest around the world, not only from big technology companies in the U.S. What's the most important thing that you want the public to know about quantum computers? I guess the most important thing is that it's a really exciting field. It really is exciting, and it's exciting in a fundamental sense. We don't quite know what we're going to get out of it. So we know a few things, and that's good enough to drive research. But the things we don't know are much broader than the things we know, and and it's going to be really interesting. I think, you know, keep your eyes open for this. Dr. Lamas Linares, thank you for speaking with us today. Sure. Thanks a lot for having me. You've been listening to Antia Lamas Linares of the Texas Advanced Computing Center. For Tech, I'm Jorge Salazar. <laughs>